going back and I am touching on a number of the, the, uh, the principal points about the kingdom of God, just doing an overview, a wrap-up before we move on to other things. But uh, we really believe that the message of the kingdom of God is the most important message for the body of Christ today and uh, in this hour. Um, I'd like you to think, uh, just as a context before I go into um, kingdom truth number four, because we had kingdom truth number one, two, and three last week, so we're going to pick up with number four today. And I'm going to share two of them, number four and number five. Um, I want to give us a little context. I want you to think way back in the book of 1 Samuel, back in the Old Testament, to David. He has been anointed to be king of Israel, but um, he is uh, running from the current king, King Saul. God's anointing is upon David. He's, he's God's chosen. Um, he's got 600 men. A mil he's leading a military band. He's living uh, out in the Israeli wilderness um, and operating as a mercenary. But he is, in fact, uh, before his um, uh, coronation, he is the anointed chosen king of Israel, and God is mightily with him. So David has a fort. He has a fort. Um, in the Bible, it's called a stronghold, the stronghold city of Ziklag. And I want to just have you think with me for a moment about Ziklag. How many of you, first of all, just so that I know, how many of you remember the story about Ziklag and, and what Ziklag is about, what happened there that is significant? Oh, good. All right. So um, God's people from the time they came out of Egypt and were delivered through the Red Sea and entered the wilderness, they were first attacked by this nomadic band that uh, lived uh, in the Negev, the, the um, Sinai Peninsula. And of all the uh, people of, the, uh, uh, um, of that area of the world, the Amalekites were the worst of the worst. They were a devil-worshipping uh, band of nomads. They were bloodthirsty. They were evil. Um, stories both in the Bible and in, in history tell of the Amalekites and the horrors that they practiced. So nobody liked the Amalekites, but for some reason, they especially, the minute they saw God's people, his kingdom, his government, how God was with them. They hated them and they wanted to annihilate them. And so for the next several hundred years, the Amalekites, Israel almost did them in a couple times, but they kept coming back. And they were, they were a source of um, not just pressure, but real misery for uh, God's people. David and his 600 men were off on a mission, and while they were away, the Amalekites raided the fort, Ziklag, and took captive all of the wives and the children, all of the people that David and his men had left behind, took all of their possessions, all of their cattle, all of their animals, livestock, and then burned all their homes. So when they came home from the mission, they found Ziklag, in smoke and in ashes, and all of their families were gone. The Bible says that they were so distressed and upset that they began to speak among themselves of killing David. They wanted to stone him. And the reason was is these men had originally joined David because they were miserable. The Bible actually uses the word in debt and discontent. Um, 
under the administration of Saul and they heard that God had anointed David and David was living in a cave called Adullam at the time. And these 600 men over a period of time gathered around David and became a band of warriors. And the Bible says that they gathered to David to make him king. So they were with David because they knew God's hand was with him to be king. And so it was not just the 600 that were with him, but everybody knew that David was anointed to be king. The Philistines knew it, and the Amalekites knew it, and they wanted to wipe this king out before he had a chance to ascend to the throne in Jerusalem. And so the men begin to turn against David when they came into the burnt city of Ziklag and saw their families gone, and they, they reasoned among themselves, I'm sure, that you know, if we weren't following you, if it wasn't this whole king thing, our families would be alive. We're being chased by the devil. We're being attacked by the devil because we've aligned ourselves with you. We'll just, we'll just solve this problem right now. We'll get rid of you and we'll get rid of the trouble. We'll get rid of the persecution. And the Bible says David was greatly distressed in 1 Samuel chapter 30 in the first eight verses. And they had spoken of stoning him. But David said to Abiathar the priest, give me the ephod. Now, you probably don't know what the ephod is, but the ephod was the, I'm going to use the word royal. I'm going to use the word sanctified, special, set apart, sacred. It was the outer garment covering that the priest put on to go into the presence of God. It was called the ephod. Now, the ephod was supposed to be worn by the high priest. But David went to the priest as they were speaking of stoning him. And David said, give me the ephod. And David took the ephod, put it on, and went off by himself. And he called out on the Lord. And the Bible says that David encouraged himself in God, which means God met him and God spoke to him. Hallelujah. When David put on that ephod, he was putting on the authority of the kingdom of God. As a king, he was stepping outside and above his political position, and he took the helm as a man of God, as a prophet of God. He put on the ephod, and God instantly appeared and began to speak to him. And David said to God, shall I pursue this band of Amalekites? Will I overtake them? Will I recover our families? They didn't know that, uh, that all of their families perhaps had already been sold off into slavery and uh, their goods distributed and gone. And the Bible says that God answered David and said, thus says the Lord, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, you shall recover all. Hallelujah. Glory to God. When David put on the ephod, rather than concede to defeat and just throw in the towel, he put on kingdom authority, and in doing so, he connected with the God of the kingdom. Hallelujah. And the aggressive policy of the kingdom of God is this. Pursue and you will recover all. Listen to me. That is the eternal, perpetual, aggressive policy 
of the kingdom of God. Jesus said it like this, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men are forcing their way into it. During the days of Jesus, people that were hungry for God had to fight through the persecution and the threats of being cast out of the synagogue to enter into the kingdom of God as Jesus went from town to town and village to village saying, I bring good news. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. Hallelujah. So this overview that I'm sharing with you is an overview of the non-negotiable truths that make up the DNA of the kingdom of God. These kingdom truths that we have been studying and that I'm uh, uh, going back over and reviewing with you, they must be re-injected back into the church today in order for us to pursue and recover all. If it's not news to you, let me report to you that the church has not been doing well for the past couple decades. Even the world and their statistics show that the church has been in great decline. While we set our eyes on the super churches and with envy want to be like all of those that there's no end to their money, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no shallowness in the deep carpet and the cushy seats, and the spectacular life examples that are streaming from the pulpit, and all of the different groups that are set up to address everybody's particular needs, while a diminishing presence of the Holy Spirit keeps draining out of the church. While we keep looking at those examples in envy, wanting to be like them, wanting to have what they have, we have been losing the presence of God. We have been systematically losing the anointing. We still have the titles, full gospel, charismatic, Pentecostal, power of God, but not the manifestation. The Amalekites have entered our land, literally, politically, socially, have entered America, and they are raiding and destroying and stripping from American culture every shred of biblical identity that we have and are carrying our children off captive. We have not been pursuing and recovering anything, but the time to pursue and recover has painfully made itself evident, and it is upon us. How many of you know what I'm talking about this morning? These truths of the kingdom need to be reinstalled in the church. Preachers and pastors need to get back to preaching these things in the pulpit. And if they, if they step on a few toes, if they cramp style, if they bring people painfully into confrontation with their need, then good, it's what we've needed, it's what we've lost. Because the way to the upper room at Pentecost is through the cross of Calvary. And Jesus said, if you are not willing to take your cross daily and follow me, you have no part to do with me. We need to recapture the things that make us uniquely the ambassadors of the kingdom. Okay, let me begin with kingdom truth number four. And it's simply this. The kingdom of God is a government. The kingdom of God is a government. 
Jesus did not bring a religion to earth 2,000 years ago. Jesus brought a government to earth. In fact, Isaiah prophesies in the ninth chapter of Isaiah that great uh, prophetic forecast of the coming Messiah. And he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Hallelujah. The gospel calls the arrival of the government of God the good news. Not the coming of a new religion. Not just simply access to heaven or access to God but the installation of the government of God among men. The Bible says that's the good news. That is the true good news. The true good news is found in that context of being governed by the living word of God, Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom, and by his word, can you say amen? amen. When we relate with God as ambassadors of his government, that's when we begin to see the zeal and the increase. Listen to what Isaiah said again. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Which means that God is eager to be zealous. He is one pent up zeal waiting for an opportunity to be released. God is increase, waiting for an opportunity to increase. But he only gets zealous about his own government. He gets zealous and brings peace where his government is honored. Praise the Lord. And so when we relate as the ambassadors of the kingdom of God, to God in that relationship, when in our prayer life, we're coming before the Lord saying, Lord, I present myself as an ambassador. I stand here in Clearwater, Florida, or wherever you may be located, and this is the place where you have posted me as an ambassador. My life is a living embassy. Sir, I stand before you today, O King of glory. Examine and set my life in order. Set the embassy in order. Lord, I'm asking for your presence to be among us. Did not Jesus say we should pray your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven? It came in heaven when Jesus personally entered heaven through those gates, hallelujah, and they lifted up their head and said, now has come the kingdom of God. When did the kingdom of God now come? When Jesus entered in. When Jesus came through the gates. Is Jesus coming through your front door of your house? Is Jesus, I, we heard the testimonies, this is a rather um, rhetorical question because we had testimonies this morning, and uh, by the testimonies, it sounds like Jesus has been coming, showing up on your jobs. Hallelujah. And you've been bringing him in. That's excellent. That's the work of an ambassador. You are representing the kingdom of God. Somebody say, praise the Lord. And what does it produce? It produces increase. What does it produce? Peace. The boss is mad at everybody else, but he loves you. Peace is on you. Hallelujah. And as, as you share Jesus with others, you see as they're open, the enemy's trying to attack them, but he can't. The zeal of God encircles them. 
and blesses them, and that peace starts to work in their life. Somebody say, praise God. However, on the other end of things, over the past few decades, churches have increasingly preached the gospel as an offer from God rather than a commandment from God. Are you listening? Do you realize there's a difference? We think the, go we think the gospel is an offer with incentives, signing bonuses. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an offer. It is a command. In fact, in the book of Acts, we look in in this one verse in chapter 17 and verse 30 on a message as Paul is preaching to unsaved people. And he says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in early times. I believe he was on Mars Hill and he was speaking with the Greek philosophers and they worshipped all these different gods and had all these various philosophies. And as he looked at all of the idols around him and as he saw the symbols of all the different religions, Paul was a gutsy guy. And he stood up there in the midst of them and said, in past times, God used to wink at this stuff that you're doing. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. That's how Paul offered the gospel. That's what we today call an offer. Paul called it a command. Are you, are, am I getting, getting through to anybody this morning? So, so people, when people today become Christians, they're not obeying a command, they're accepting an offer. And it has an, a, an impact from that point forward how they relate with God how they relate with the Bible, they, how they handle messages. When messages are preached under the anointing, when God lays his word out, when teaching is put in front of them, when they're reading through the scriptures, they're the place where they entered in to a relationship with God is an offer, not a command. And so because of it, it's how we end up with, that's how we end up with with people being selective about the scriptures they obey and backslide when things don't go their way. And it's why today many people get saved but they don't get surrendered. That's why the, the church is a harvest field today among people that claim to be saved. You're, we're still trying to get people to surrender to Jesus. But, but the gospel of the kingdom is a surrender. That's what it's supposed to be. And so I think we need to re-examine how we present, how we think. Challenge yourself. What do you think about the gospel? What is your relationship with God? Do you feel compelled to obey the word of God as a citizen of the kingdom? Or do you feel as though, well, the Lord's made me an offer. He's so gracious. He's so good. And, and that you allow yourself the luxury of being selective in what you obey and what you don't obey in his word. You see, Christianity as a belief rather than a government is how the church ends up with a culture of believism rather than a culture of discipleship. When's the last time the body of Christ really looked like 
disciples. When you read the book of Acts, even though they had their problems and the church has always had its problems, but by and large, the believers were disciples. They were disciplined adherents. They were kingdom citizens. They had a kingdom concept when they came to Jesus. They didn't have to be cajoled and begged to obey the word of God. Because they were, came into the kingdom as a surrender to the commands and claims of King Jesus rather than as lucky recipients of God's offers, their attitude was, show me where to stand. Tell me what I must do. Direct me. Groom me. Modify my life so that I look like you. True disciples, can you say amen? They weren't just saved. They were surrendered. Hallelujah. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking about the kingdom as a government rather than as a religion. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. You see, when you receive Jesus as a religious figure, there's no obligation to settle accounts. As a religious figure, his job is to enlighten you and to lighten your load. But if you receive him as a king, if you have entered the kingdom of God and not just signed up for a religion, then everything changes because the king is the one who always has a prerogative to settle accounts with his citizens. And so Jesus himself said, the kingdom of heaven is as if a king wished to settle accounts with his servants. But those who walk in the kingdom of God, practice the government of the kingdom of God daily, they practice daily accountability to the king. When we walk in kingdom mentality every day, we think in terms of accountability. I'm accountable to the king. And when things don't go our way, we feel frustrated, the opportunity to sin or temptation, or we begin just incrementally start drifting away and getting cold. We don't blame God for not keeping us hot and spiritual, but we take on a sense of accountability. Father, where have I drifted? Draw me back. Show me where I can reconnect with you. When you pray like that, the Holy Spirit is right there to answer that prayer. That's kingdom praying. Can you say amen? When you live accountable to the king, you are governed by his word. Then the word of the gospel will be energized, work within you. One of my favorite verses is in 1 Thessalonians excuse me, chapter 2, verse 13. It says, um, Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers and he says, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now that last phrase is powerful because when he wrote this in the Greek language and he said, when you received the word of God, you didn't receive it as just an abstract ideal. You received it as the command from God. 
And because you received it as a command from God, it is, and the King James says, effectually working or at work effectively in you. But that, that English translation falls short of what was being said in the original text because what Paul wrote to them in the Greek language, he said the word of God is powerfully dunamis, working in you. So he uses the word dunamis. He says the word of God is like dynamite exploding powerfully and effectively working in you. And when he used the word working, he used a Greek word energeio or energio. And what do you think we derive from that word? Energy. Hallelujah, energy. So he says, when you receive the word of God as the word of God with the intention of surrendering, submitting, and obeying it, and you line yourself up with the word of God, it will break open, explode within you, and release its energy. How many Christians are running around today saying, I'm trying to, to you know, do what the word says. There's no joy, there's no power in their life. The word has never really opened up inside of them. There's not, a, there's not a release of the divine energy. You know, Jesus taught that the word of God is seed from heaven. And when you plant it, it has self-fulfilling power. If you plant it in the right soil under the right conditions, it'll break open and it'll produce what it's talking about. When the Bible says, with his stripes we were healed or delivered or I give you authority over all the power of the enemy, the, the power to fulfill those things is actually in those words. And so when you obey what the word says, those words will open up and produce the deliverance, produce the healing, produce the power Work the transformation in your life. But only believers who walk in the kingdom and see themselves obligated under the government of God ever really experience that. And that's why you, you run into a lot of believers that they've just backslid. They're off on the side. They say, well, and they'll all say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm just not going to church anymore. I don't really see the use in it. I mean... You know, and, and unfortunately, they're right. There really wasn't much use in their going because they weren't being challenged with the government of God. And, and the, 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 the word of God was not put to them as a command. It was offered to them as an incentive. And when you offer the word of God as an incentive to people, and I, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that... that People don't have a free will, and they, that will should not be honored. It should be honored. I never browbeat people and, and go up to them and say, you must do this. But Jesus commanded, and the apostles commanded, this is what the Word of God says. It's just they didn't try to make people do it. They just said, this is the way, walk ye in it. God's always spoken like that. You can choose it, you'll, you'll be blessed. You can ch not choose it, and guess what? You will be not blessed. I've been blessed. I've been not blessed. And, and it's not God's arbitrary decision to bless you. It's your choice to be blessed by walking under the government of God rather than following Jesus as a religious figure. All right, I need to move on. Uh, the second and the last truth that I want to share with you this morning is this. 
Authority is the currency of the kingdom of God. Years ago, I used to say faith was the currency of the kingdom of God. That the, that, the, that the wealth and the treasures of the kingdom of God are released and traded across the world through the medium of faith. And I think that's true. I think somebody could argue and say love is the currency of the kingdom. You could probably make a, a case for a lot of different things like that. Those are all good things. And they're certainly all part of the wealth of the kingdom. But I think in essence, what truly is the conveyance, the currency of the treasure and power of the kingdom of God, I would have to say is authority, God's authority. Where there is no authority, there's no transfer of power. There is nothing happening. There's no manifestation of the kingdom. Churches and individual Christians who do not live under God's authority don't have his authority and lack his power. Those that do have both his authority and his power. In Luke chapter 10 in verse 19, Jesus said to the disciples, Look, I have given you authority over all of the power of the enemy. So the enemy, Satan, has abilities. He has power. He can make your life hard. He can make it miserable. He can take your life away. But I have given you something that can cause you not just to resist him, but to overcome him so that he cannot harm you. And that which I have given you to overcome the power of the devil is my authority. The authority, the same authority by which he spoke the worlds into existence. The same authority with which he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, get on out here. And Lazarus came forth, hallelujah. So we overcome the abilities of the enemy in our life with the authority that God has furnished us. That authority only exists for those that live in the kingdom of God. Because rule number one about the authority of God is this. God's authority comes from abiding in the kingdom. That whole 15th chapter of John where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He was teaching them about authority. He was saying, I want my authority to express itself through you. I, I want Jim, and I want David, and, and I want Marissa, and, and Diane, and Chris. I want all of you to express my authority. I want the world to see my authority resting upon you. I want those that you touch and those that you interact with to experience my authority flowing through you. And so in order for that authority to flow through us, you must abide in the vine. You must abide in the kingdom of God. Christians that don't abide under the government of Jesus Christ as king, they lack authority. They lack authority. You can, you can know a lot about the Bible. You can have committed it to memory and you can have a great theological grasp. But if you don't abide in the kingdom, you see, just abiding in scriptures is not abiding in the kingdom. Knowing the Bible and just attending church is not abiding in the kingdom. And matter of fact, I would have to say this morning that uh, the church and the kingdom are not 
automatically the same. There are many people that are in the church that do not live or walk in the kingdom. Just like there are people that are saved. They die, they're going to go to heaven, but they're not surrendered to Jesus. Are you listening to me? You see, God's trying to pull us up. He's trying to bring us up to the place where he originally wanted Christians to be. God, he, he's not, the Lord is not collecting souls to pop, repopulate heaven. He is raising a kingdom to rule over the earth. Somebody say, praise God. Satan is not threatened by born-again Christians. Born-again Christians have absolutely no power or effect on Satan whatsoever. But kingdom-abiding Christians, that's a whole other thing. Kingdom-abiding Christians can plunder the kingdom of darkness and set free its captives. When you abide in the kingdom of God, you have authority and dominion over the enemy. You can bind him. If you want to know how do we get people saved, walk in the kingdom. Start using the authority that he's given you. Jesus marveled, was absolutely amazed one day when the servant of a centurion, a Roman centurion, a military man, came up to him and said, I serve so-and-so the centurion. And his servant at home, who he loves dearly, is about to die. And he's requesting that you would heal him. And Jesus immediately said, I'll come right now and I'll heal him. And the centurion sent word and said, Master, that's not necessary. I'm frankly not worthy that you should come under my roof. Now, this is a military man, so he sees all of life through the eyes of rank, the chain of command. And he says, I see you, and I'm not worthy to enter your house. But, sir, speak the word, and my servant will be made whole. The Bible says Jesus marveled. Just take in that statement for a moment. God in the flesh heard a man say something, and was stunned, marveled. He was like, wow. And he even remarked, Jesus said, I haven't found a single person in all of Israel, my covenant people. Here is this, this foreign military guy. I haven't found anyone in Israel who understands me like this guy understands me. This guy has faith based on really understanding that I don't have my, the power that I have because of religious accuracy, because I'm accurate with the truth. I have the power I have because I'm in a chain of command and I abide. I don't step out from under that chain of command. My father's over me and the angels are under me. And the, the, the centurion saw it. He said, speak the word only, my servant will be made whole. Jesus said, go on back to your house, it's done. And it was done. Somebody say amen, hallelujah. I want to share one last thing with you about, uh, about authority being the currency of the kingdom. Jesus, I think, was describing the mentality of walking in the authority of the kingdom. When he said um, in Mark chapter 10 to his disciples, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, shall not inherit it, shall not enter it. One more time. Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, cannot enter the kingdom. So he's obviously talking about 
something about the mentality of a child allows, permits them to enter the kingdom, to come in under the authority of God. Once you've entered the kingdom and you're walking under authority, you, just like the centurion said, you have authority. You walk with authority. You can now go out and you'll find green pasture because you're walking in the kingdom. Well, when he said that, whenever you hear preachers preach about this, whenever you hear commentators, they always attribute Jesus' statement about the little children to a statement about the quality of their faith. You know, children believe what you tell them. Adults, they're jaded. They have a hard time believing. But children just believe you when you say you're going to do something. They believe it. Uh, I think there's an element of truth to that, but I really don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was not making a commentary about the quality or the nature of a child's faith versus the faith of an adult. But you know what I believe he really was talking about? He was talking not about a child's ability to believe. He was talking about a child's willingness to be directed. Children automatically do what their parents tell them to do. I know, I see, I, I heard, I saw the chuckles, I know. But there was a time when they did. There was a time when they did. In a, in a, in a normal parent-child relationship, it is automatically in the mind and heart of a child to look to their parent and be directed. They might, they might quibble and say, well, I don't want to go to bed right now. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about jumping through hoops and God is not commanding us to do unreasonable things. I'm talking about that general relationship of a child looking to his or her mother or father and have no compunction, no resistance whatsoever to being directed. Next week, we're going on a trip. Oh, good. The child doesn't say, well, can we afford that? <laughs> a new car shows up in the driveway. And the child comes to the door. Oh, a, a new minivan. Wow. The kid doesn't say, really, can we afford that on our budget? Are you sure? I thought we were trying to keep our spending down. There, there's no arguing. They just are willing to be directed. And I think we, that's why we call it faith, because they're agreeable. But listen, a lot of times what we try is believism. But real faith is really submission to authority. True faith is submission to authority. I don't object to your rule over my life. Somebody say amen. All right, praise the Lord. Close up your Bibles with a parting thought. Let's go back to Ziklag for a moment. In that wonderful story of Ziklag, I asked myself this morning, where are we in that timeline? Where is the church today in America along that timeline of that story between David and the Amalekites and the city being raided, and then David pursuing and bringing back all the wives and children and possessions. 
I believe this is the point that we're at in that story. In general, as a nation, and as the body of Christ, particularly right now, I believe we are at the moment of confusion and of anxiety and despair, realizing we've been robbed, realizing our youth have been corrupted, realizing that all of our possessions have been spoiled and they're now in the hands of the enemy. You can't send your kids to college anymore without the college, in most cases, throwing back to you a ruined uh, child and somebody who's ready to march off and follow Satan's orders uh, and, uh, against our country and against our society. That's where I believe we're at. But let me put it in a positive envelope for you. We're at the moment of confusion just before David said, bring me the ephod. Hallelujah. Amen. Bring me the ephod. We're in the put on the ephod moment right now. Listen to me, because this is prophetic. We are in the very moment where we put on the ephod and encourage ourselves in God. We're in the very moment where we realize, my, my men want to kill me. And everything's falling apart. But David remembers, my God isn't falling apart. And whatever his plans are, they're not falling apart. So I'm going to go get with God. Give me the ephod. It's time to pray. It's time to intercede. It's time to worship. And David went off and prayed and interceded. And he talked, talked it over with God. Shall I pursue? God said, absolutely. It's the mandate of the kingdom, man. It's the policy of the kingdom. They didn't just rob David and his men. They robbed the king and his army. They robbed the people of the kingdom of God. And God said, oh, no, no. You don't rob. You don't attack. You don't raid the people of the kingdom of God and walk off with their people and their stuff. When you walk in the kingdom of God like David and his men were, you are walking in a special place. And so when he asked God, shall we go after them? God said, absolutely. You represent my kingdom. Get after them. Hallelujah. So we are in that moment. We can be despondent. We can, can, we can be distressed. We can just play church, go along playing church, or we can get after it and recover the gates of America, recover the place of assignment where God has posted us. Is it going to be easy? No, the Bible says pursue. Are we going to have to fight? You betcha. Pursue means when you catch them, they don't just hand it over to you, you fight. We fight the fight of faith, we fight in spiritual warfare, but yes, it's a fight. But the wonderful thing is, God does have an ending for this. And I believe we need to stop believing, stop believing that the struggle ends with an Amalekite victory. Number two, convert our people to kingdom consciousness. Every pastor in America needs to be getting in the pulpit and teaching the principles of the kingdom and reinstalling in their, in their members the concepts of the kingdom. And then number three, we need to put on the ephod as the body of Christ so that God can encourage us. 
And number four, perhaps realize that nothing outside of us is as great as what is inside of us. Can you say amen? amen. Just remember, hallelujah, we, the God of the kingdom slew 1,000 Philistines through Samuel with the jawbone of an ass. So don't worry. God can use you. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right. Close up your Bibles or turn them off or whatever it is you do and stand with me.